The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. As we come to Isaiah 15 and 16, I acknowledge here before you the challenge of expositional preaching. It is quite possible that there's no congregation on the face of the earth that had Isaiah 16.4 projected up on the walls as we did this morning about fugitives from Moab and finding refuge in Christ. And that's uh, the challenge of exposition and the joy as well. For all scriptures, God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Amen? And so also Jesus said, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, my brother and good friend, fellow minister, Andy Wynn, had John 3.16 last Sunday. I get Isaiah 15 and 16. So, and he did a wonderful job, and I was greatly encouraged. But frankly, the more I studied these two chapters that we're looking at today, the more relevancy I saw in my own personal life. I don't know that this is something that you're necessarily going to take a verse from and memorize or something like that, but yet it is the word of the Lord to us today. And I pray that God would enable me to preach it with power and with conviction so that our lives might be transformed. I'll never forget summer of 1987 when I had the privilege of ministering to refugees who had fled from the invading Russians from Afghanistan. They were in the, across the border in Pakistan. And we went to the city of Peshawar and we ministered to them. They were the most miserable and destitute people I'd ever seen in my life. And still, it's the case. I've seen some poverty in, in Asia, uh, in India, in Haiti. But I've never seen the kind of misery and pain as I saw etched on the faces of these that had, had run for their lives from Russian helicopter gunships. Many of them had seen relatives and friends killed before their very eyes. Their prospects were limited. They were not incredibly welcome in Pakistan. They were safe, at least for the time being, but their, their prospects economically were dim. Uh, very few people were ministering to them. They had a hard time eating and caring for themselves. And again, the future looked dim. And what a joy and a privilege it is to go in a situation like that and minister the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? To be able to bring hope where other than, than the ministry of the gospel, there would be no hope. But the 20th century really was a century of refugees. If you look at World War I, you look at World War II, you look at, at grainy old black and white photos from World War I and, and footage, even of uh, German dive bombers strafing columns of refugees that are fleeing from Belgium or fleeing from Poland or fleeing in Russia or the Ukraine. You can, you can see a picture in your mind of what it is to be a refugee. It's a terrifying situation to be in. To lose everything that you have except what you can carry with you. I remember uh, a picture of an elderly French woman and she's got a mink stole on and she's got a, an evening gown and a, a valuable painting and she's got it in a baby buggy and she's pushing it down a muddy road. It's all she has left of a former way of life. Everything that she has, she's carrying with her and you get the sense that it won't be much longer. She won't even be pushing that baby buggy. She'll be stripped of everything. And so it is to be a refugee. And the more I meditated just on Isaiah 15 and 16, the more I saw the relevance to our lives. I don't know that any of us will ever be refugees. I do know this, that uh, 
United Nations High Commission on Refugees said there are 65 million displaced persons in 2007. So there's a lot of them around the world. And there's an opportunity for us as a church of Jesus Christ to minister. We had an opportunity to minister to some refugees who came to us from Vietnam. And what a great privilege that was. And we may well have a practical ministry to refugees. And it could be that if we are, in fact, the final generation and some of the uh, events that are recorded in the book of Revelation take place, then we will actually know what it means to flee for our lives and to dwell in caves and look for a place of refuge from an encroaching terror. It's coming to hunt us down. We may know that. If the Lord tarries, we may actually never know that. But there are people, even brothers and sisters in Christ, in the Sudan and other places in the world, that are actually going through this right now. So at the physical level, I think there's a relevance uh, to this text. But I also see a spiritual connection as well. And I don't think it's hard to find, because what happens in this text... This is judgment on Moab, and some unnamed invader comes into their country, and the people of Moab have to run for their lives. Their military strength is gone, they have nothing left, their religious strength is gone, and they run for their lives, and they actually turn at that point to their former enemies in Judah, the Jews, and see if it's possible that they might take them in. As a matter of fact, the Isaiah the prophet says it's the only refuge you're going to have. Now, I'm going to talk about what the invader, who the invader could be. We don't really know who it is. But if, in fact, the invader was Assyria, and if they came in during a certain time, it could be that literally, physically, the only refuge there would be would be in Zion, in Jerusalem, with godly King Hezekiah. And so this, in the end, becomes a picture for me of the gospel of Jesus Christ and how Jesus... The descendant of David, the king, the Davidic king mentioned in the middle of Isaiah 16, is in fact the only refuge there is from the coming judgment. And so there is a beautiful spiritual picture of the gospel as well. Now the Bible does this over and over. Oh, how the Lord wants us to flee to Christ. And how many different ways does it give us incentive that we would run for our lives. And run to the only refuge that there is, the refuge of Jesus Christ. And so there are pictures again and again in the Old Testament of a place of refuge where if you go there, you're going to be saved from the coming judgment and the coming wrath. But if you go outside of it, you're going to be, you're going to be killed. You're going to perish. Noah's ark is a picture of that. If you're on the ark, you're safe. If you're outside the ark, you are lost. So also during the time of the Passover where the Jews painted the, the blood of the sacrificial lamb over the doorposts and uh, the angel of death passed over. And if he saw the blood on the house, everyone inside the house was safe. But if you were outside the house, your blood was on your own head. That meant you are going to die. And so there's a place of refuge, a place of security and safety. And outside there is none. Or again, uh, we have Rahab's house nestled in the walls of, of the walls of Jericho. And the promise with the, you know, the scarlet cord hanging down that, that she and all of her relatives, they would be safe if they stayed in the house. But if they got outside the house, their blood would be on their own heads. They would die. And so it is also a picture of a place of refuge where you have to be inside, you have to be there. And there the refuge is, and outside there is none. Or again, in the law of Moses, there's provision for cities of refuge where if you accidentally kill somebody, you can run for your life. And if you get there, uh, before the avenger of blood comes, you'll be safe. And they'll protect you and keep you safe until the death of the high priest. So it was a picture, again, of a place of refuge. Don't you see how all of these are pictures of Jesus Christ? Don't you see Christ in all of this? Don't you see the need to run for your life? 
that there is a judgment coming worse than the flood of Noah, for it's an eternal judgment, an eternal fire, and what we stand to lose is not just our mortal lives, but our souls, and that we are encouraged again and again and again to run for our lives to the point of refuge, and that is Jesus Christ. So there you have it, and there's the sermon in a nutshell. What we have is a current event that's not so current, 7th century B.C., 8th century, the time of Isaiah, when the Moabites had to run for their lives, and what lessons can we learn from this? So we have, in this section of Isaiah, the oracles against the nations. Isaiah the prophet is giving an oracle or a saying, a prophecy, concerning Moab. And so from Isaiah 13 through 23, one nation after another is addressed through the prophetic voice. Isaiah the prophet speaking here to the little country of Moab. We've had oracles against great nations like Assyria and Babylon. And then last time we looked at an oracle against the Philistines, a smaller nation, and here the Moabites even smaller. And so in this, the sovereign God who rules over all the earth is orchestrating the events of all the earth. And he speaks an oracle through his prophet to the people of Moab, the Moabites. Now, who were the Moabites? Well, they were descended from Lot, Abraham's nephew, when actually in another picture of refuge, Lot fled from Sodom and Gomorrah to the little town of Zoar and was able to survive the fire and brimstone, a picture of Again, the refuge, fleeing for your life. But then, uh, thinking that it was the end of the world, they took up refuge in a cave, and, and Lot was there with his two daughters, and the daughters thinking that there would no more people on the face of the earth, perhaps the memory of the flood still very fresh in their minds, uh, they induced their father through wine to uh, lay with them, and each of them had a son by their own father. And from this came two peoples, the Moabites and the Ammonites. Now, the Moabites took up residence in a tiny piece of land east of the Dead Sea, stretching from the Arnon River, which dumps into the Dead Sea, to the Zered River on border with Edom. It's a small piece of land, 30 miles by 30 miles, really small. The Moabites were not a mighty and significant people. They were usually enemies of Israel, usually in opposition to the people of God. They would fight against them. For example, during the Exodus, they would not allow the Israelites to pass through their territory, but they had to go around. They hired Balaam to curse Israel. And you remember what happened with that. They, uh, the Moabite women seduced the Israelite men to worship the Baal of Peor through sexual immorality. It was the Moabite women that did that. And as a result of all of these things, the law of Moses forbade any of them to enter the assembly of the Lord down to the tenth generation. They were forbidden to enter. During the time of the judges, God gave Israel over to a Moabite king, Eglon, you remember, the fat man. And Eglon was murdered by one of the judges, Ehud, a left-handed man. But those are the Moabites. They were the enemies of the people of God. It was Moabite wives that seduced King Solomon to worship foreign gods. They're specifically singled out and to worship Chemosh, their detestable god. They occasionally organized armies to fight against the Jews and they usually lost. But they were the enemies of the people of God. By the end of uh, Kings and Chronicles, Moabite raiders are still plundering Israel. Yet for all of that, it was a godly Moabite woman, Ruth, who said to Naomi, where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. And from Ruth came David, and through David ultimately came our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so therefore we see the grace of God in dealing with a pagan people. 
And we see also God's saving intentions to the Gentiles and to every tribe and language and people and nation, everyone on the face of the earth. Yet these are the people, the Moabites, who are running for their lives in these two chapters. It's the Moabites who are running. Now, why are they fleeing? Well, look at verse 1 of chapter 15. Ar and Moab is ruined, destroyed in a night. Kir and Moab is ruined, destroyed in a night. And by the way, if you see Keith Pendergraph, thank him for that reading. There's something like 20 proper nouns in that. He did a phenomenal job. I don't know that I'm going to do as well. I was adjusting my pronunciation as I listened to him read the scriptures. So thank you, Keith. You know, we thought about that at staff meeting. Now, who's going to do this reading? And please urge them to practice ahead of time. But what is going on in Isaiah 15.1? Well, these are two cities in Moab, Ar and Kir, and both of them destroyed in a night. They're gone. These are their strongholds, their high places, their walled fortresses, and they are nothing to the unnamed invader. In a single night, they are gone. Both of them have fallen. Furthermore, their religion has proven to be empty. They turn to their high places. Uh, verse 2, Dibon goes up to its temple, to its high places to weep. If you look all the way over to chapter 16 and verse 12, it says when Moab appears at her high place, she only wears herself out. When she goes up to her shrine to pray, it's to no avail. Chemosh cannot help them. You know why? Because Chemosh doesn't exist He's an idol of their own imagination, and Chemosh cannot save them. And so they are running for their lives. They are fugitives. Look at verse 5 of chapter 15. Her fugitives flee as far as Zoar, as far as Egla, Shalushia. They go up to Luhith, weeping as they go on the road to Horonim. They lament their destruction. So you see a picture of a, of a train of refugees crying, running, leaving possessions behind, stuff strewn along the roads. That's what's going on. The Moabites are running for their lives. And like all refugees, they try to carry whatever they can of their possessions. Verse 7, it says, So they wealth, the wealth they have acquired and stored up, they carry away across the ravine of the poplars. So they're going to carry their gold and silver with them. Well, how long is that going to last? It's heavy. And so there comes a point where they leave it behind. And the army that's going to come after them will pick it up and plunder them. So that's what's happening. These are refugees leaving behind their old way of life. And the slaughter is terrible. Look at verse 9. Dimon's waters, chapter 15, verse 9. Dimon's waters are full of blood. But I'll bring still more upon Dimon, a lion upon the, upon the fugitive Moab and on those who remain in the land. Whether it's a literal lion or it's just more military conquest coming on this straggling uh, line of refugees, it doesn't matter. The fact of the matter is it's just a miserable, horrible time for these Moabites. And the rivers are filled with blood. And so you see the image of their women in chapter 16, verse 2. They're like fluttering birds, it says, pushed from the nest. So are the women of Moab at the fords of the Arnon. So as they're trying to cross this river, they are just panicking and uh, weak and defenseless. A picture of, of the refugee. And so at this point, they turn to Judah for help. And this is the only place they can turn. And this is frankly what Isaiah wants them to do. If you look at chapter 16, verse 1, it says, Send lambs, lambs as tribute to the ruler of the land from Selah across the desert. Where? To the mount of the daughter of Zion. Reach out to the Jews. And why? Because salvation is from the Jews, friends. Isn't that what Jesus said to the woman at the well? Salvation is from the Jews, your ancient enemies. Reach out to the daughter of Zion. That's It's advice that Isaiah is giving. It's really that God is giving. Reach out to the Jews in your moment of distress. Now, I have no idea historically what this is referring to. Nobody really knows. 
We have a sense of what's going on, but nobody really knows. Now, of course, the big bully of the time was Assyria. And it could be that uh, in 715 B.C., one theory is that the Assyrians were coming down and dealing with some Arabian raiders that were making commerce difficult. And as they did, they passed through a little Moab. And what do the Assyrians do when they pass through somebody's land but do this kind of thing? This kind of conquest, this kind of bloodshedding, this kind of plundering and pillaging. Could be that's exactly what was going on. But the end for Moab is quite near. Look at the end of our reading today, Isaiah 16 and verse 13 and 14. It says, this is the word the Lord has already spoken concerning Moab, but now the Lord says, within three years, as a servant bound by contract would count them, Moab's splendor and all her many people will be despised and their survivors will be very few and feeble. So it's, it's a timetable, three years. As a servant bound by contract, meaning counting the hours, it's going to be very accurate, and within that time, three years, uh, Moab will be finished. And so that's what's going on. Look at Isaiah's reaction. Weeping for the refugees. Now, I find, I find this fascinating. The emotional response of Isaiah to these who are supposedly their enemies. I tell you that God does not willingly afflict anybody. He doesn't willingly bring suffering on anybody. For so says Lamentations 3, 32 and 33. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love, for he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to the children of men. The consistent teaching of Scripture is that it is, in fact, God that brings these disasters. There's not like a subset of disaster that didn't come from God, it had nothing to do with God, and then those things that God brings. He does everything. He's king of the universe. But he doesn't willingly bring, it says, affliction on the children of men. It's not God's home base. God doesn't delight in bringing suffering. That's not what he's doing. It's called in Isaiah 28, 21, his strange work and his alien task. It's not his home base. He does it for a reason, for a purpose. I believe he afflicts the nations to get them up out of their self-satisfied, self-worshipping rut and cause them to seek a Savior, who they would never seek if God didn't afflict them. And so as Isaiah says, actually King Hezekiah, as he's recovering from his illness, surely it was good for me to have been afflicted. It's a good thing then to be afflicted if in the end it means salvation for your soul. And I think that's what's going on here. God brings these kinds of afflictions because there is no way the Moabites will seek a savior from the descendants of David unless they are desperate and running for their lives. And so God brings this kind of affliction into life. But you see the emotion. You see the compassion of God through his spokesman Isaiah. You see him weeping for them. And it's really quite surprising. Look at verse 5 of chapter 15. He says, My heart cries out over Moab. Her fugitives flee as far as Zoar, as far as Eglath Shalisha. They go up to Luhith, weeping as they go. On the road to Horonaim, they lament their destruction. So he's weeping for them. He has compassion for them. Or then in chapter 16, verse 9 through 11, it says, So I weep as Jazer weeps. The shouts of joy are stilled. Verse 10. Joy and gladness are taken away from the orchards. No one sings or shouts in the vineyards. No one treads out wine at the presses. For I put an end to the shouting. My heart laments for Moab like a harp. My inmost being for Kir Hariseth. Now this is Isaiah. Isaiah is speaking. He is a man. He is reacting to his own prophecies. He's reacting emotionally to what he's writing. 
But in so doing, he is God's mouthpiece. And it really is God's own reaction to what the Moabites are going through that's quite remarkable. And you have to look carefully, but look at verse 10 and then on into verse 11 of chapter 16. It says, Joy and gladness are taken away from the orchards. No one sings or shouts in the vineyards. No one treads out wine at the presses. Why? For I have put an end to the shouting. Do you see that? The word I? Isaiah didn't do that. It's not Isaiah's work to put an end to anything. He's an announcer. He's a messenger. Well, this is God speaking. And therefore, the very next verse is God speaking as well. My heart laments for Moab. This is the nature of our God. He brings the affliction, but he weeps at the effects. Surely God's ways are not our ways. And his thoughts are not our thoughts. They're so infinitely high above us what God is doing in the world. But I believe he does it out of compassion. I believe he does it so that people will turn from their sins and cry out to a Jewish Savior. To cry out to Christ and to be saved. That's why he does it. And unless some harsh treatment comes in most of our lives, if not all, we will never do it. We will never do it. Christ wept for his enemies, didn't he? Didn't Christ stand over Jerusalem and weep for the coming judgment that would come on that city? Didn't he say concerning men that were murdering him, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Do you see his heart there? Do you see the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9? testifying that he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish over the Jews who are making his life utterly miserable and who would love to kill him as well. And yet he testifies solemnly that he would trade his salvation for theirs if he could. Amazing compassion. What about us? What about me? Every time I come to this issue of my level of compassion for the lost, I'm brought up short and convicted. And I realize that I have to cry out against the stoniness of my own heart and realize I just don't care enough about fugitives, refugees. I don't care enough about the lost idolaters around me. I don't care enough. And I have to fan a little ember into a flame by a biblical meditation on what hell is actually going to be like. I have to do it. The scholarly pastor Andrew Bonar in Scotland lay on his bed Saturday nights and down in the street below his window he could hear revelers tramping back and forth going to the, the, the bars basically and the shows. Empty, searching for something. And he used to get out of his bed and weep over their souls and cry out, Oh, they perish, they perish. And he would weep for them. Or Oswald J. Smith, who brought the gospel to over 50 countries, is what he said. Can we travail for a drowning child, but not for a perishing soul? It is not hard to weep when we realize that our little one is sinking below the surface for the last time. Anguish is spontaneous then. Nor is it hard to agonize when we see the, the little casket containing all that we love on earth born out of the home. Oh, no, tears are natural at such a time, but oh... To realize and to know that souls, precious, never-dying souls, are perishing all around us, going out into the blackness of darkness and despair, eternally lost, and yet to feel no anguish, shed no tears, no, no travail. How cold are our hearts? How little do we know of the compassion of Jesus? Now, I, I take solace from the fact that you can even see that Oswald J. Smith, who brought the gospel to over 50 countries, saw that weakness in his own heart. It's not natural for us. But we ought to weep over the kind of judgments that come on the lost 
and we ought to travail for their souls. And so we see the sorrow of Isaiah and really the sorrow of God over the affliction necessary to save them. We also see the great advantage of these refugees. Now, you might say, what advantage could there be in being a refugee? Well, in an earthly basis, at a purely secular level, I can't possibly see any advantage. As I said, these were the most miserable people I'd ever seen on the face of the earth. I don't mean in terms of their emotional state. I just mean in terms of their circumstances. I was talking to somebody recently, and as I look at the hierarchy of suffering, the only thing I think worse than running for your life before an invading army is being captured and held by a malicious tyrant who loves to torture you, and you can't escape or die. I think that's probably the worst earthly circumstance you could be in. Of course, none of this compares to hell, because there is always some escape from any misery here on earth, and there is no escape from hell. But still, I think being a refugee is a horrible situation. And yet, there is an advantage if in the end you come to your senses and come to faith in Christ. If you realize you're really running for your life, and by that I mean your eternal life, and you realize that your ordinary way of life was only going to lead you to hell, and something caused you to get out of that rut that was drawing you like by gravity right down into hell to get up out of that and say, where am I going? And then you come to your senses and say, I need a savior. Then it's worthwhile. There's some advantages then in being a refugee. Foundations are removed. All the things you counted on and relied on are taken away. You have to think about everything anew and afresh. Everything's been tossed up, open for, up for grabs. And the pride has been removed. Oh, that's important. Look at chapter 16, verse 6. It's mentioned right here. We have heard of Moab's pride. Her overweening pride and conceit, her pride and her insolence, but her boasts are empty. Oh, they're empty now. Now that whoever it is has come in, the Assyrians, let's say. Oh, there's nothing left to be proud of now. Now they're beggars looking for some place of refuge. Actually, that's good. Because Jesus said, blessed are the spiritual beggars, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's good to get to that point where you realize you have nothing in your hands to give to the king. You're just begging for a place of refuge. That's a good thing. And so the pride has been destroyed. It's amazing how proud we are, isn't it? I mean, what do we have to be proud of, really? We're just created beings. Everything we have, we receive from God. What do we have to boast about? But yet, it's just in there, that worm of pride. And it's so ugly when you see it in someone else, isn't it? <laughs> it's so ugly when you see it in another person. But it's ugly if you can see it in yourself, too. I was reading a, a quote by French philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And I can scarcely read this without just feeling a curdling effect in my stomach. He said openly what most people would never parade. But the pride is just oozing from this paragraph. Listen to what he said. What could your miseries have in common with mine? My situation is unique, unheard of since the beginning of time. The person who can love me as I can love is still yet to be born. No one has ever had more talent for loving. I was born to be the best friend that ever existed. Show me a better man than me. A heart more loving, more tender, more sensitive. Posterity will honor me because it is my due. I rejoice in myself. My consolation lies in my self-esteem. If there were a single enlightened government in Europe, it would have erected statues to me. End quote. Wow. <laughs> Listen, bro, let's sit down and have a conversation. 
Let's get the scripture and find out what the truth really is. But, you know, what's so sad is that we're like this, though we don't admit it. We're not going to bring it this far, but has anybody ever suffered like me, we think? Nobody loves like I love. If I really got what I deserve, they'd be erecting a statue. I don't know if we'd carry it that far. But the pride, it's really laughable. And it's actually good to laugh at yourself and to realize. But, you know, to actually get cured from it, sometimes it takes this level of affliction. To run for your life strips you of pride. What do you have left? Where then is your resume? Where then your possessions? Where then your glorious future? You're running for your life, and that's what it's done. So there's a great advantage to being a refugee. Now, it's good if you know the refuge. Amen? If you know where to run to, now that's a benefit. And I say to you, the only safe refuge is Jesus Christ. And he's mentioned in the text, though indirectly. Now, with their pride stripped, the Moabite refugees have nowhere to turn but to Judah. As we already mentioned in chapter 16, verse 1, they're sending, they're urged to send lambs as tribute to the Mount of the Daughter of Zion. That's Jerusalem. They beg for help from the Jews. Verses 2 through 4 of chapter 16, like fluttering birds pushed from the nest, so are the women of Moab at the fords of the Arnon. Give us counsel. Render a decision. Make your shadow like night at high noon. Hide the fugitives. Do not betray the refugees. Let the Moabite fugitives stay with you. Be their shelter from the destroyer. The oppressor will come to an end and aggression will cease. The aggressor will vanish from the land. And here we have a stunning and a beautiful prophecy. A ruler from the house of David. Look at 16 verse 5. In love a throne will be established. In faithfulness a man will sit on it. One from the house of David. One who in in judging seeks justice and speeds the cause of righteousness. Oh, how sweet is that promise of Jesus Christ. This isn't any one of the Davidic kings. Yes, Hezekiah was a godly man, but he's no final refuge. He's a picture of a refuge, but he's not the final refuge. Oh, no, the final refuge is Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He's the refuge. And so, therefore, Isaiah predicts the establishment of a Davidic throne that will reign in righteousness. And he, this Davidic king, will bring justice to the nations. It is Jesus Christ then at last who is every refugee's place of safety. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and find refuge. Jesus is the name of the Lord. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You run to him and you find refuge. What refuge is there? The foot of the cross where Jesus shed his blood for sin. The real danger is not the Assyrian army or any army. The real danger is the wrath of God. Do not fear those who kill the body and after that can do nothing to you. I'll tell you the one to fear, said Jesus. Fear the one who has power to destroy both soul and body in hell. We need a refuge from hell. We need a refuge from the judgment of an all-seeing God. We need a refuge from judgment and wrath. That's what we need. And Jesus Christ is the place of refuge. Amen? We can flee to Him and find safety. And there is no other There's no other place. God didn't ordain that Noah and five other people each build an ark. There was one ark. There was one place. One place of refuge. And so is Christ. In the Old Covenant now, Moabites, they were excluded to the 10th generation. Oh, but praise God for the New Covenant. Amen? In the New Covenant, anyone who repents and believes is welcome. All that the Father gives me will come to me, said Jesus. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. There's your welcome. 
There is your place of refuge, Jesus Christ, saying, Come to me, all you are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And so he is the place of refuge, mentioned right here in Isaiah 16 and verse 5. Now, what's the connection to our lives? Are we ever going to be refugees? Well, I can't say. I cannot say. I do know, though, there will come a time when every nation on earth will run for their lives. And if we're alive at that time, you'll run too. You'll run too. It's all you can do. But this is what the Lord says. Isaiah 13, 13 and 14. Therefore I'll make the heavens tremble and the earth will shake from its place at the wrath of the Lord Almighty in the day of his burning anger. Like a hunted gazelle, like sheep without a shepherd, each will return to his own people. Each will flee to his native land. Haggai 2, 6 and 7. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations. <clears throat> Isaiah 30, 27, 28. Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar with burning anger and dense clouds of smoke. His lips are full of wrath and his tongue is a consuming fire. His breath is like a rushing torrent rising up to the neck. He shakes the nations in a sieve of destruction. Or Hebrews 12, 26 and 27. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removal of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken will remain. God himself is going to shake the nations in a sieve of destruction. And all the nations that live at the time will run for their lives. So you will be a fugitive if you live in the final generation. It is your future and mine if the Lord tarries. And it's a terrifying thing. And the prediction is plain in Revelation 6, verses 12 through 17. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red and the stars in the sky fell to the earth as late figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll rolling up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals... The rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man, free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Run for your lives. It's going to be literal at that point. But the real danger is nothing on earth, friends. The real danger is Judgment Day. That's the real danger. When you stand before Him who knows everything you ever said, everything you ever did, who knows the inclinations of your heart, who remembers everything perfectly, that's the danger. As John the Baptist said to his Jewish enemies, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Has anybody warned you to do that? To be a refugee from the coming wrath? Have you learned to do that? To flee from the wrath to come? Jesus Christ is the only refuge from that wrath to come. It says in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, Jesus rescues us from the coming wrath. Amen? He is a safe refuge from the coming wrath. It says in 1 Thessalonians 5.9, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so run for your lives. The beginning of Pilgrim's Progress... Christian, reading in the book that he actually lived in a place called the City of Destruction.
started to be worried about the future. (laughs) Wouldn't you? If you lived in a place called the city of destruction. And so he's reading about it in the book, in the scriptures. And he has a terrible burden on his back, a sense of guilt of his own sins that's going to press him down to hell. And uh, he talks to his wife, but she doesn't believe. She thinks he's crazy. Children don't believe. They think he's crazy. His neighbors think he's crazy. Then evangelist tells him where to go to a wicked gate and to a, a, a flashing light. And he begins to run there. And he's running and he's got his fingers in his ears. So he doesn't listen to the cries of his unbelieving family and his mocking neighbors. He runs and runs and runs for the distant salvation. Running for that light, for that gate. So that his soul can be saved. Run for your lives. Do you live in the city of destruction? Yes, you do. So do I. And so we're called on to run this race with endurance. To keep running until we're done. Run for our lives spiritually. So what application do we take from this? Well, first, nothing you see around you is eternal. Don't be deceived. You can say, what? We heard a strange sermon today on being a refugee for Christ. (laughs) I don't think that's going to happen to me. Well, be careful, friend. Be careful. Because someday you're going to lose it all anyway. You are. And it's good to know it. Now, I don't know that the specific political and military situations or earthquake or hurricane that would cause you to be a displaced person. I don't know whether that will ever happen to you. But I do know this. You ought to live with that kind of mentality as an alien and a stranger on earth looking ahead to a city with foundations whose builder and maker is God. Run for that place, the celestial city. Nothing will ever remove that. It cannot be shaken. Run for that. So hold on to your possessions loosely and live a holy life worthy of that final day since... It says in 2 Peter 3, everything will be destroyed in this way. What kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed is coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the earth will melt in its heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So live a holy and godly life. 1 Peter 2.11 says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in this world, To abstain from sinful lusts which wage war against your soul. Thirdly, I would urge you to cry out over your own hardness of heart as I do over mine. That you don't care more about the plight of the lost. Be like God. Be like Paul. Be like Andrew Bonar and Oswald J. Smith. Be like these men and women who learn to weep over the condition of lost friends and relatives and co-workers. And if you don't care much, know that God knows you don't care. He knows, however, if you're a believer, you want to care. You want to be healed from your hardness of heart. You want to care about the poor and the needy. And so go to him and ask him for it. Be a spiritual beggar for that too. Say, Lord, change my heart. Give me tears to cry over lost people. And stay there until he does. Meditate in depth on passages on hell. That might help you. And finally, consider in a practical way ministry to refugees. We've already had some in this church that have sacrificially given to refugees from Vietnam. And it's been a sweet experience for them and for the church. You can give money to Persecution Project, which ministers to Christian refugees in the Sudan, especially in Darfur, that area. You can minister to refugees that are non-Christians, as we did in Afghanistan or Pakistan. Those were Muslim refugees. 
Perhaps God might call you to that kind of a practical ministry. In any case, whatever God calls you to do, live your life as a refugee here on earth until God takes you to heaven. Close with me in prayer. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.